the big part of the expedition was going down to the Buren Peninsula and diving on a site that's considered to be one of the worst disasters in the United States naval history. Our goal was to dive on the remains of the wrecks USS Truxton and USS Pollux. 110 died on the Truxtons and on the Pollux, 93 died. That was in February of 1942. They were working with a brand new radar system they were getting some false signals and literally drove right into the cliffs. That's Jill Heinerth, one of the world's leading divers. She's also a documentary maker, author, speaker, educator, RCGS explorer in residence, and she's our guest on this episode of Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast. Welcome to all you explorers out there, armchair and in motion. I'm your host, David McGuffin. When we last had Jill Heinerth on the podcast, she was prepping for the RCGS-flagged Great Island Expedition, a diving tour of World War II wrecks in and around the island of Newfoundland. One of the stories she shared with us last year as she prepared for the expedition was about Lanier Phillips, an African-American on a U.S. Navy ship that sunk off the coast of Newfoundland during the Second World War. Black men like Lanier Phillips were given the lowest jobs in the racially segregated U.S. Navy. And they were warned by their officers that if they ever went ashore, they'd be lynched by the locals. With his ship going down in harsh winter seas off the southern Newfoundland coast, Lanier Phillips convinced his fellows that the risk of lynching was better than almost certain death on a sinking ship. What followed would change his life. And as this woman, Violet Pike, started scrubbing Lanier's body because he was covered in oil. He woke up and said, ma'am, you won't be able to scrub this off my body. It's the color of my skin. And she said, what? I've never seen a black man. How cool is this? (laughs) And she thought he was quite special and brought him home and she wanted to take care of him. But to her shock, when the Navy sent a bus to take the men that did survive, the very few, he couldn't ride the bus with them because he was black. And this man actually went on to fight racial discrimination. It was because of the love and care from the people in Newfoundland that he recognized that he was fully human for the first time in his life. Violet Pike opened his eyes and he never turned back. He fought racial discrimination. He became the first black sonar technician, a full member of the U.S. Navy. Beyond that, he went on to work in undersea engineering. He joined the Alvin team, the sub team. He collaborated with Jacques Cousteau. He marched with Martin Luther King in Selma, Alabama. As a mark of gratitude, Lanier Phillips would return to Newfoundland many times, visiting the people and the community that saved his life. On her Great Island expedition, Jill and her team dove to the wreck of the ship that Lanier Phillips escaped from one among many of the Second World War dive sites they went to. But we start with her dive to an RCAF Liberator bomber that no one had seen since it crashed and sunk in Gander Lake 80 years previously, taking with it the lives of four young Canadian men. Jill Heinerth, welcome back to the Explore podcast. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Yeah, no, great, great to have you back. It's always good to catch up with what you're up to because it's always fascinating. Um, And I know the last time we had you on, um, we were still pretty deep in the pandemic, but you are planning to do this expedition, uh, Great Island Expedition with RCGS and uh, other partners uh, around Newfoundland um, and very focused on World War II events. And I'm just wondering, you know, how how that all went. 
Yeah, we finally pulled it off <laughs> last August. <laughs> uh, yeah, we had to delay a couple of times just uh, because we were going into a lot of small communities in Newfoundland with elderly population, and we just couldn't take the risk of being a vector for COVID in a, in a place like that. So it was great to, to finally pull it off in August, and and it was worth the wait because of some of the amazing discoveries that we had. Let's talk about those because I mean the the one that really caught my attention. There's a lot though, but that was the B the B twenty four Liberator bomber. That oh guys... yeah, and that's something that uh, wouldn't have happened if we had actually done this expedition in in uh, twenty twenty in all likelihood. So so that's uh, in in the bottom of Gander Lake. And tell us about that. Yeah. So um, back in uh, nineteen forty three, it was um, September fourth, nineteen forty three. Uh, a B-24 Liberator bomber uh, was taking off from Gander Airport and local people report that they just saw something happen, like perhaps an engine failure, and then it literally spun and barreled down mm. right off the end of the runway into Gander Lake. And uh, there were four uh, men on board that lost their lives in the in the crash. And this is RCAF, they're Canadians, is yes. that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and and at the time, I mean, these liberators were known as flying coffins. <laughs> you know, they were being made so quickly during the war um, that uh, they they weren't easy to fly, and uh, they weren't terribly reliable, apparently. Um, but they were critical to patrolling the coast of Newfoundland and Labrador on anti-submarine missions. You know, looking for these German U-boats that were. Uh, you know, wrecking havoc on on um, cargo ships and ferries and all kinds of of you know even civilian um, vessels right. at the time. Yeah. So in 1943, this is sort of the peak of the Battle of the Atlantic. And yeah, absolutely. Um, and the, yeah, as you say, these convoys were the lifeline from North America, to, mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. really it was a Canadian-run operation too. Yeah. More or less. Yeah. yeah. And I've spent quite a lot of time in Newfoundland diving on some of the mm. uh, the wrecks in Bell Island, for instance, the wrecks that were carrying right. or the ships that were carrying um, this high grade of iron ore from the Bell Island mine that was critical to the shipbuilding efforts, and um, and that was one of the targets of those U-boats, and 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 that was also one of the things that the Liberators tried to protect were were those sorts of uh, you know cargo ships heading across. Yeah. So, so that liberator itself was was doing coastal patrols. It was taking off to go on patrol. Is that it was? Yeah. yeah. And the first step for me was really to uh, fully understand what a liberator looked like and what identifying mm. marks I could be seeking out. Because you know, even when we know the location of of a ship or a, a aircraft remains, we do have to confirm that it is the one we think it is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and and so I actually made a trip. Um, to a fellow's house in, in uh, St. John's, Robert Mayer, who was um, actually rebuilding, reconstructing the remains of a liberator from the very same squadron. And it was one that had crashed in Goose Bay. Wow. And yeah, so he had actually, with help, retrieved all of the bits and pieces and parts from the forest up in Labrador and brought it back to his property in, in St. John's and was starting to rebuild the aircraft. And uh, when I got there, he had, you know, the fuselage was filling this this shed that he had and and then little parts of the aircraft like 
critically this this little gunner's turret he had reconstructed so that I could see just how small this thing was that a man had to crawl into and kind of rotate down these little elbow rests and how he would sit squeezed in this completely exposed little canopy um and, and with a, a belt of ammunition and a, and a 50 caliber aircraft, uh, anti-aircraft uh, gun um, sticking out the, the front. Um, so I, I got to see these bits and pieces. And I, I asked Robert if I could see the tail stabilizers because there's critical sort of RCAF or other markings on a tail stabilizer. Mm-hmm. And he says, oh, yeah, I think I have that. You know, let's go this way. And we probably walked about 500 meters through the bush to another little shed that was kind of overgrown <laughs> and, and pushed away the vines and opened the creaky door and stepped into this sort of musty shed that kind of reminded me of my grandfather's old sheds and moved a few pieces of of uh, aluminum. And, and, and there it was, a tail stabilizer with this little red and blue rectangle with a little gap in between painted on the on the tail and he says yeah this is one of the things that you should look for when okay. you're identifying your aircraft yeah oh, amazing what a great resource i mean he's that guy's a story in himself it oh, sounds like <laughs> honestly he... i could have spent days just kind of combing through the bushes and see yeah you know, what he had and i asked him i said whatever you know compelled you to want to completely yeah. restore an aircraft and he said, well, I, I, I restored an old MG once. <laughs> no way. I said, okay, well, I guess this is a different magnitude because yeah. right now the fuselage is filling his his main building and, and he's going to have to kick out the wall to continue. Oh, no way. <laughs> yeah. And you're not buying parts on eBay for that. No, eBay, no. no. <laughs> you know? You're machining no. parts probably. Wow. Yeah. And even, you know, just restoring it to something that's kind of museum worthy could take, you know, millions of dollars if you wanted to actually make it fly that'd be another another yeah. story yeah well, well we'll have to check back in with him yeah at a later yeah. date um so so this, this plane takes off in presumably yeah. in bad weather and it, it crashes and what, what tell what do we know about that, that that moment yeah so um wing commander um jm young um was flying it um and it was uh uh, there were three other people on board, and and one was a physician, uh, and we think they were doing some sort of hearing tests or noise mm. tests. Um, so it was it it wasn't a patrol flight; it was more of a you know medical research flight, and mm-hmm. um, and we don't know a whole lot about what was going on. And then the crash happened so quickly, um, the the plane you know was lost, and then of course uh, there were some immediate attempts to try and recover the bodies and and the aircraft itself but it lay kind of on this precarious ledge between about 37 and 48 meters of depth in the lake and they did find it right away um but at the time the technology for diving would have been hard hat divers so surface supplied on hoses with you know um hard hats and and they descended down to the aircraft and I'll tell you the visibility is inches in this lake it's terrible um but they got there and and they did manage to um recover uh the one body and uh and then three remained so they tried grappling the aircraft they tried like because it had flipped upside down and and lay um top down on the Mm. on this ledge um but every time they grappled it or tried to sort of 
you know, break into the interior, it was shifting. And after 11 or 12 days of work, they just deemed it too dangerous because it was just teetering on the edge of, of falling another 250 meters to the bottom of Gander Lake. And so they just abandoned it. And, and then it was sort of lost to history. Um, Amazing. Yeah. So it's just local lore that people remembered this thing? Or, yeah. I mean, yeah. Did, Eyewitnesses uh, yeah. just had recorded their findings and they even had a GPS location. So it was so many years, decades before anyone kind of took interest. And there was a local fellow, a, a Gander native um, uh, called Tony Merkel, who was interested in finding this. And in, in his own boat, he would comb the area and he had the GPS location, but couldn't see anything on his bottom finder. And uh, he was a diver, didn't see anything when he dived. Mm -hmm. and so there was just kind of like, oh, maybe we've got the wrong marks. But last year, um, well, actually, even before last year, he joined the, the Newfoundland and Labrador Shipwreck Preservation Society to try and get more um, skills, more knowledge, um, more diving credentials, more archaeology credentials. Um, and through that connection, he hooked up with a man named Kirk Regular, who had a much more advanced side scan sonar for some other work that he does. And he was doing some other work in Gander Lake. And he said, hey, could you just have a look at this area? And as soon as Kirk did, we got kind of the rough outline of what looked like an aircraft. Um, yeah, but... Tony wasn't really ready to um, dive on his own. And that's when our team came in. It's like, hey, you're going to be here. Um, could you dive on this location? See if you can tie into the aircraft and, um, and get some documentation. And so we were like, yes, perfect. This totally ties in with the, the story that we're doing in another part of, uh, of the province. Mm -hmm. And um, so we managed to get there and on the actually – the 79th or, or just one day short of the 80th anniversary of the crash, uh, we did six dives and, and documented what we could in, in the very cold and very low visibility water. <laughs> wow. So tell us about that. Like what, what do you, I mean, it's not no vis, almost no visibility. Almost so, no visibility. Yeah. yeah. So our and, first. And how, and sorry, and how deep too? Yeah. So it's between 37 and 48 meters kind of tilted and upside mm -hmm. down. Wow. And um, the first diver we sent down a colleague of mine, Luke Michel. Um, he went down to tie in to the aircraft on the location and fortunately, like we literally got right on top of those marks and he descended with a line and tied into um, the landing gear, basically. So kind of the undercarriage of mm -hmm. the aircraft. And so after he'd done that, um, myself and uh, and um, uh, an archaeologist actually dropped down, um, his name's Neil Burgess, and we dropped down that line um, to do the first images so as we're descending we can't see anything like we both have our hands on mm. the descent line and um and we're dropping down and my camera is kind of pointing down and with and i'm sort of looking through a viewfinder and it's amazing but my camera saw the wreck before i did wow <laughs> so this the sensor technology in in some of these you know high def cameras today yeah. is better than our eyes and so as we're descending um, I'm also very aware of the fact that we're we're kind of deep and we're we could experience nitrogen narcosis, something that kind of um, 
gives you a little bit of a drunkenness if you're diving on an air mix. Our initial plan was to have helium available, but helium is getting scarce these days. And Mm. despite the fact that we had ordered it months before, it didn't arrive in Newfoundland in time for us because of the scarcity it's it's needed for you know hospitals it's, these yeah, days it's like a pande- pandemic shortage thing isn't right it? Yeah, right yeah. yeah so so we drop down my camera sensor sees the wreckage and i'm like yes and i have two thirty-three thousand lumen lights on my camera bright and bright lights bright <laughs> bright lights and yet neil my archaeologist partner um keeps like he's losing me. He can't even stay with me because the lights are just being sucked up in the blackness. Wow. Wow. So it was almost a matter of, of kind of like spraying my camera at the wreck, despite the fact that I can't see much at all. So are you seeing through the viewfinder? Is that? Yeah. yeah. I'm looking Mm. through the viewfinder. Mm. I'm seeing more than my eyes can see, but even just that extra distance between the camera and myself, is making a huge difference. So the camera dome's closer to the wreck. And mm-hmm. so it's it's getting a lot more. Uh, and so I thought, okay, I'm just going to, you know, swim as much as I can um, around and capture everything I can and review the footage after to see if, if we got it. And the wreck's very crumpled and it can be disorienting because it's upside down and I'm trying to stay with Neil and he's trying to stay with me. And we also want to make sure we don't lose the upline uh, because... It's it's a whole lot safer to come up that upline and do your decompression time than just swim up in this you know open water where you can't see anything in the blackness that could be very disorienting. Uh, so we had a, a short dive and got the footage, came up, and then uh, a total of six dives um, that day between the team members managed to get enough footage that when we got back that night to a place where we could look at the footage, we discovered that we had what we needed. <laughs> oh, wow. So from, yeah. ta- from tail markings and things like that? Tail or... markings. And uh, for me, I-, I pretty much knew we had it when I found the little gunner's turret that matched um, mm. what was in Robert Mayer's, um garage. And it was sort of broken off to the side of the wreck, but sort of sitting there um and I could identify this little rotating base um, that it would have spun around on. Uh, but we also found some really unusual things like, um, well, we did find some some guns themselves, the 50 caliber weapons. We found ammunition belts so you could see the bullets. Um, we found um, an intervalometer, which is a, a small box with some little dials on it that lets you dial in how many bombs you want to drop? How quickly? <laughs> oh wow! Amazing. Yeah, yeah, really interesting little little box. Yeah. So there's, but, yeah. Go, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was gonna say, but there and there's also, I mean, there's three bodies on there. Yeah, but you're not seeing those, or yeah. Well, with the aircraft upside down, and with us being very careful not to disturb anything, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we're not digging into the fuselage or anything like that because th- that's just not right like when we dive on a shipwreck or aircraft remains or anything we don't touch anything we don't remove anything Mm -hmm. unless there's been um you know a permit pulled from the appropriate authorities to do so in fact we just needed a permit even to dive on this site right right. um i guess among other things it's a war grave isn't it it is it's absolutely a war grave and and to an archaeologist there's so many things that can be significant and even just touching removing 
or relocating something can can destroy important scientific baselines that that they need to look at. Yeah. Yeah. So you return to it, obviously, the next day. You've got all this great footage. Yeah. So we got quite a bit of footage and, and we're turning that over to um, uh, Memorial University of Newfoundland mm-hmm. as well as um, to um, the people that that make decisions about what happens with, uh, you know, war graves and remains and things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so and so that's actually a, a, a sort of a casualty identification office that 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 decides uh, whether there should be some efforts and they, they um, consult with the descendants of, of, of the people lost and, and, uh, and make a choice. Like in, in the U S there's a much more aggressive um, effort to sort of repatriate the remains of Mm -hmm. of lost souls. And, um, and yet in Canada, that's not necessarily the case. Oftentimes, you know, the descendants would say, well, you know, we're happy to know where they are and we would rather they just left them there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. 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 So next steps is all really based on that. Then. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I honestly, I don't know what the next steps will be or whether I ever dive there again, because yeah. that's really out of my hands. I'm, I'm happy to yeah. help out as, as someone with the sort of technical diving knowledge and the mm-hmm. imaging capability to do further documentation. Um, and, and a couple of our team members were asked to go back in the summer to, to further document it so that we could mm. um, provide a, as full a, a survey as possible. Um, and, but now it just sort of sits and waits and, mm-hmm. and we'll see uh, what the next steps are. So this is a this is an inland dive, uh, but you are yeah. mostly in salt water, I think, for this tour. So what w- were other summer memorable, memorable yeah. moments from this, this tour around Newfoundland? Well, we started, um, we flew into Deer Lake and then we all gathered at Gross Morn. Mm, um, beautiful, yeah. Yeah, because we thought that would be a really good place to um, get the team together, get our diving procedures organized and, and get our feet wet <laughs> before before the the big part of the expedition, which was going down to the Buren Peninsula and, and diving on a site that's considered to be one of the worst um, disasters in the United States naval history. Mm-hmm. So pretty interesting. Uh, our, our goal was to dive on the remains of the wrecks Truxton and Pollux, right. USS Truxton and uh, USS Pollux. And those are near the communities of St. Lawrence and Lawn um, in the Buren Peninsula. So we we touched on this a little bit the last time because you were talking about Lanier Phillips and his yeah. incredible story, and I I'll mm-hmm. definitely encourage people to go back and listen to that, but because uh, mm-hmm. his story is an amazing one. But so I mean, tell us a bit about what happened to these ships themselves. And yeah, so that was in February of 1942. There were three ships in the convoy: the the Truxton, the Pollux, and the USS Wilkes Bar. And um, they're in 60 knot winds, 20 to 40 foot seas, which I suppose isn't that unusual off the coast of Newfoundland in February. Right. Um, and they were working with a brand new radar system that they didn't totally understand. And when it iced over, uh, then uh, they were getting some false signals and literally drove right into the cliffs. <laughs> so, so a terrible, embarrassing accident for the, for the U.S. Navy. The, the Truxton uh, ran into the to the shore near St. Lawrence, and then the Pollocks ran into the shore near Lawn. 
and the Wilkes bar just a little further down. And uh, the Wilkes bar managed to pull off the rocks, uh, but it was damaged and wasn't able to aid the other two vessels. So um, the Truxton very quickly broke up and, mm. um, and everybody was in a fight for their lives and, and the Pollock soon after. There were um, 110 that died on the Truxton, so only 46 survivors, and on the Pollocks, uh, 93 of 233 um, died. Wow. Yeah, so you can imagine, like, February, when you're basically in street clothes and suddenly being flung into the sea in 20 to 40-foot seas that are crashing up against a 90-meter-high cliff, you know, an impossible granite, shale, crumbly, ice-covered, now oil-slicked cliff. And your only chance to safety is first to, to get to the shore in those seas without drowning in, you know, inhaled oil, because <laughs> the, the, the sea is just full of foam and oil. And then once you get there, you've got to climb this cliff in February. And, and then when you get up to the top of the cliff, all you see is um, snow, you know, right. uh, it's not like you're on the edge of town or anything. You're really in the middle of nowhere at that point. Wow. Yeah. So incredible disaster then. So, and th so the, these two ships are on the ocean floor now. And yeah. Uh, so how accessible were they? And what was that experience like? Yeah. So the Truxton, um, that was the one of the greatest interest to me. That's a, a Clemson class uh, destroyer. Uh, I was most interested in that. The Pollux is is um, a supplies ship. It had some pretty interesting stuff that I'll come back to. But but the Truxton I was really interested in because of the Lanier Phillips story yeah. and and the the tale of of what it was like to be uh, a black mess attendant in a segregated U.S. Navy and the fact that he's the only person of color that survived from that ship. Um, but yeah, so. I really wanted to, I wanted to find something it, that could help me feel a deeper connection to Lanier's story. And, um, and, you know, as you mentioned, we, we, we shared that story in our earlier podcast, but now having had this personal experience, it's so much more powerful to me because Lanier as a mess attendant lived his life in the bowels of the ship, just mm -hmm. doing laundry and shining shoes and serving meals to officers. Yeah. And he wanted so much more. I mean, he slept fully clothed with a life jacket nearby just because you know, lots happens. He was in numerous, um, uh, you know, shipping accidents and sinkings in his, in his life. Yeah. Um, so he was from the Jim Crow South and was effectively in the Navy still in the Jim Crow South. Basically. Yeah, he's from Lithonia, Georgia. I mean, the yeah. Ku Klux Klan burnt down his high school. Um, yeah. So, yeah, joining the Navy was his only chance, even though it was a segregated Navy. Uh, but his second job was to man a deck gun. So so although black and, and people of color, um, those segregated uh naval mess attendants had to live in the bottom of the ship and were told never to go topside because they would be lynched either by the people aboard or by the communities that they visited. Um, he did have one topside job and that was if they were under attack. So if under attack, he was expected to go up on deck and man one of the defensive deck guns, but not shoot it, stand there on deck and take the hot shells um, that had just been fired and tossed them into the ocean. So they mm. didn't start a fire. Wow. And so I thought, could I find that deck gun? Would it still remain? And the entire wreck is 
just pieces. There's some, you know, large gears and boilers and hull plates. Um, there's a lot of copper and brass and little personal reminders. Like I found all of these forks and spoons literally growing out of the rock now. Like the coralline algae is kind of covering them and making them a part of the seafloor now, but but there's a fork sticking out of the out of the substrate and I'm like, oh, did did Lanier handle this? Was would this be something that he served, you know? I found little padlocks that would have been maybe on a a person's footlocker and they had USN um engraved in them. But then I found a large barrel of one of the deck guns. And the most interesting thing was that the brass plate on the on the gun was clearly visible, and I could kind of like rub my hand on it and see some of the uh, some of the writing. And then there were urchins growing on it, but there was also this big big metal plate lying beside it. And I realized that that the gunner shooting that would have been behind the plate, protected as you know those shells kind of you know popped and then landed on the deck and Lanier would have been right there throwing these into the ocean wow and I actually found that on the last dive we did there we had it's it's, it's a difficult place to dive even though it's it's not that deep um the the Buren Peninsula is so exposed it's a southern exposure and so even in mild seas the surge and the waves are difficult to manage so you know, for most of our time there, we were even unable to get out in the in the seas. But on the very last day, as we were returning from the Truxton, or returning from the Pollux, mm-hmm. um, I said to Rick Stanley from from Ocean Quest Adventures in in, in Newfoundland, I said, "Hey, um, can can I do one last dive here with with Neil and just get a few more images? Maybe the visibility will be a bit better today." And I jumped in and looked around, and that's when I realized that what we had was that deck gun. Ah, that's and, amazing! Oh, yeah. I just, I just wanted to feel you know closer to him and his story, and what and a I great could connection. envision it. Yeah, yeah, what an amazing connection. Yeah. Huh. And so, what I mean, what are, these things are now basically like reefs themselves, I guess. These, yeah. 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 I, the Pollux is kind of like someone like spilled a hardware store all over the, the seafloor, right? <laughs> like, because it was a supplies ship. So there's, yeah. there's tools and there's wire and there's like, like those little padlocks I saw there too. And, and lots of things from, from the mess halls. So, yeah. so there's certain things that persist, the copper, the brass, you know, yeah. portholes, you know, are still lying on the mm. seafloor there. But the big, you know, rusty iron plates are all twisted and dissolving back into the sea. And they they become a kind of an artificial reef covered in, in kelp. Um, and then a lot of the, the small little objects are just kind of um, on the seafloor with, you know, kelp fronds waving in the surge over top of them. And uh, they're just slowly being consumed really by mm. by the ocean and its inhabitants yeah uh, amazing i remember reading a description you uh, about the, i'm not sure if it was this ship or another but just the the barrel of the gun with sea anemones growing yes. out of them. yeah <laughs> the, the bell island shipwrecks there's oh, two that's a different large one. Yeah, okay. yeah two large defensive deck guns there and i and i always say it's no longer spouting salvos of ammunition just bouquets of anemones so, <laughs> yeah 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 yeah, so that's amazing. So, it was, and what is Bell Island then? We have, that's a good segue. Is that is that also on this tour? Or? Oh yeah, we we finished um, the trip in in Bell Island. Uh, of course, we 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 couldn't you know 
go to Newfoundland without doing that. Cause, and we were going all around the island. So, mm-hmm. um, so we had a chance then to dive on those four um, shipwrecks that were carrying the iron ore. Uh, but we also had a chance to um, be a part of a really special commemoration event on um, September 8th in 2022. Mm-hmm. So um, both the Government of Canada and the Belle Island Community Museum, the, the community museum that sits right on top of, of the mine and right adjacent to this massive towering spoil pile of rocks that children would have sorted back when they were involved in working in the mine. Oh, wow. Uh, so this special event um, with uh, the Honorable um, Stephen Guibault, uh, he's the Minister of Environment and Climate Change, mm-hmm. um, as, well, uh, as well as the Minister responsible for Parks Canada, um, and then local MPs and um, Historic Sites and Monuments Board of Canada uh, people. Uh, we were unveiling a special plaque commemorating the national historical significance of the German U-boat attacks on Belle Island. So both the mine and the wrecks. And this is sort of that next um, step forward to creating a, a completely, you know, national historic monument out of out of the site. Yeah. Oh, amazing. So that's heading in that direction now then. Yeah, it, it's a very long process. Like uh, in the last couple of years, uh, the military has been involved in removing all of the ordnance from the Bell Island wrecks to, mm. to safety those because that's part of the process. Yeah, too. for sure. So many, many steps have to occur before before that official yeah. designation. Yeah. And that's a great story, too. I mean, those were ships that were sunk by yeah. German U-boats. And that's, you know, that's right. not not far from St. John's and St. John's Harbor. And Yeah, that yeah. was two separate attacks in September and November in 1942, um, two different um, U-boat attacks. Uh, and it was the, the first one in September 42 that that's sort of the most interesting to me because the U-boat um, U-513 was under the command of uh, Rolf Rutherberg. And um, he followed this one ship, the Evelyn B, into the Belle Island anchorage, very close to where they would load the uh, iron ore from the Dominion and Scotia piers there. And he spent the night uh, kind of waiting underwater. Um, And in the morning, he rose up into the periscope depth and then quickly sank two ships. And it completely shocked um, the community. Um, 29 men died in the attack on, on the Saganega, the USS, uh, or, or sorry, the SS um, Saganega. And then the, and then he uh, sank the Lord Strathcona as well. But what was really interesting is that Rolf Rutherberg kind of um, regretted his role in these sinkings. And we know this because, um, because his family has now created a very deep connection with um, the people in Belle Island and thanks to Rick Stanley, uh, 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 an RCGS fellow and, and the owner of, of Ocean Quest. So Rick was giving a talk in the UK and um, somebody, uh, uh, I guess, related to the family, found a brochure from the talk on a bus, I guess, passed it on to the family. And the family reached out to to Rick saying, you know, we're really embarrassed about our lineage. <laughs> we are the descendants of Rolf Rutherberg, you know, living in England today. And um, and our mother has a chest of his stuff in her attic. And oh. and we've never known what to do with it. It just, it feels so evil. But, you know, but maybe, maybe we could 
repatriate this or take it over to the museum um, and, and do that. And it took Rick seven years um, through friendship and outreach to the family. He brought them to Newfoundland. He introduced them to the people of Belle Island and Belle Island. And he said, you know, we don't hate you. You know, we're your friends. This is not your responsibility. And and besides, as it turns out, when they dug through that chest of stuff, Rolf Rutherberg regretted sinking civilian ships, and he he took all these like tourist pictures of the coastline of Newfoundland, and and thought it was beautiful, and uh, frequently, you know, rose to uh, periscope depth, and and then even surfaced to to take photographs for a little album. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it took seven years for Rick finally to to convince the family to bring the artifacts to Belle Island. And and there they were presented to the museum where they are today. Wow. Um, both his, you know, his Iron Cross, um, some of his medals, his diaries, his photographs, some of his, um, you know, certificates from being part of the, uh, the German military. And wow. and. It, it, it's extraordinary. I mean, the, the event, there were just tears everywhere <laughs> because at the time there were still people in Belle Island alive that rescued some of the men from mm -hmm. those sinkings. So Incredible. So, yeah. And that museum is on Belle Island itself? Or? Yeah, it's on Belle Island in um, a small building that sits atop the Belle Island number two mine. Hmm. So that's how how you get into the mine. It looks like a little house almost, <laughs> except for the fact that there's this great tailings pile beside it. And um, and you go into the this small building and inside is the most extraordinary collection of, yeah. of artifacts and also some amazing um, pictures by the incredible portrait artist Karsh. Oh no way. Yeah, he From photographed. Ottawa. Yeah. Yeah, he photographed the um the Bell Island miners because he thought they were just such amazing portraits. So this portrait collection is in the museum and and then I've I've um gifted a large collection of my underwater photographs of the shipwrecks too. Wow. What a little then, hidden gem of a museum. Like, oh, it is. It is. Incredible. They, they, they even have um, like a piano uh, from from one of the vessels because the night before the sinking of, of the PLM, the Paris Lyon Marseille um, free French vessel that was carrying iron ore, the night before the sinking, the captain sold his piano to someone in Newfoundland and now the piano is sitting in the museum. Ah, lovely. So, yeah, so it's a mixture of the shipwreck story and the mining story. And then you can walk down this little set of stairs to a room where the miners would have put on their overalls and caps and boots. And then from there, you can walk down into the mine and go on a tour of the dry portion of the mine and right up to the water's edge where I go in the water and go diving in this nine square miles of underwater passages that are just full of the industrial archaeology of, of mining. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, there's just another reason to go to Newfoundland, isn't it? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, when you swim through the mine passages, mm -hmm. it's um, you follow along, like, tracks that are kind of buried in the silt where ore carts would have been running downhill in the dark. Um, you follow on the ceiling, you'll see, like, electrical cables and lights, even light bulbs, you know, that are, are, are still there. You'll even see the remains of, 
of different vintages of cap lamps. So everything from seal oil lamps to a carbide lamp that a miner would have worn. And you could follow the pipeworks that would have um, helped to run the tools uh, underground. And you also can see along the walls inscriptions. So sometimes it's just where somebody has scratched a series of numbers to add up their load for the day. Sometimes you can see um, places where people have drawn caricatures with the soot from their cap lamps. Uh, And then at other places, you can see little white crosses that mark the location where men lost their lives. Yeah. So there have been a lot of them. 106. 106 men lost their lives. Yeah. 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 I mean, so much of the focus of this expedition is the Second World War. And I'm just wondering what, you know, what, what the inspiration was there for you or what the... Well, it, it's, it started for me when I rode my bike across Canada. <laughs> it's a weird connection. But um, 10 years ago, I uh, embarked on a cross-Canada bike ride with my husband, unsupported from uh, Vancouver all the way to St. John's, Newfoundland. And when I got to Newfoundland, I picked up the telephone and I called Rick Stanley, a man that I only knew of and right. had no relationship with, and said, hey, you know, I know about you. <laughs> I know you do some amazing diving in Newfoundland and I know nothing about diving here. Um, I'd love to finish our ride. And, you know, could I rent a place at your, your little adventure resort for a couple of days at the end of our ride? And he said, Oh my gosh, no, you cannot. He says, you be my guest. <laughs> you can't rent a, a place here. You be my guest. And I will, you know, tell the story and take you around and, we had a series of, of speaking engagements already arranged in St. John's to share our, our, our water documentary that we were cycling across the country. But my a couple of days in Newfoundland at the end of the trip turned into, you know, two weeks of, of touring around and learning about this World War II history that I didn't even know about. Yeah. And and I'm embarrassed to say that that I didn't know this part of Canadian history or or what would become <laughs> Canadian history because Newfoundland wasn't even part of Canada then. Yeah, no, and many don't too. And I, but I think yeah. the beauty of the timing of this too is, it's, I mean, we're losing our veterans, our World War II veterans that are, you know, they're all in their 90s at least now. Yeah. Um, so it's, I think it's just so important to find ways to bring their voices back. And I think what this, that's what this does in, in a very lovely way. It is. And, and Newfoundland made an especially large sacrifice in in the war. I mean, the Newfoundland Regiment lost so many men. Um, and then even, you know, the, the people that remained behind had incredible sacrifices as well. Like I think about the people in the, the Buren Peninsula in St. Lawrence and Lawn that, that, you know, rescued those men from the sea and, and, and still carry those stories. Like Lanier Phillips is a folk hero in that part of Newfoundland. His name isn't even known in the United States, but he's a folk hero in Newfoundland. But so are all the people. Like there is one remaining rescuer from those um, sinkings of the Truxton and the Pollocks. Gus Etchigary is still alive. Um, he's in his 90s. In, oh, amazing. Oh, I'd love to interview him um, while yeah. we still have him because you know, the firsthand accounts of those stories. I I got to speak to um, the, the descendant of a young woman 
who uh Ina Farrell, Ina Farrell Edwards, who photographed the sinkings and then all of the aftermath. She photographed them pulling the bodies up and interring them in St. Lawrence and then disinterring them and moving them again um, wow. to Argentia. And she followed for years what remained of the wrecks as it broke up in, into the ocean. And she was just a, a teenager when the sinkings occurred. She'd skied out there um, to the edge of the edge of the cliff on Chambers Cove with her little brownie camera that he, oh, she had brownie. earned, yeah. you know, working in, in uh, the general store there. And so I spent some time um, uh, with her son at the home where Lanier stayed for years and continued to visit for years afterwards um, and held her original photographs in in my hands. And oh, uh, so they still exist. That's they fantastic. They still exist. And, so where are they? Uh, so he has the originals, but oh my God. there are copies of, of all of her notes and and so many other archival uh, resources at the Memorial University of Newfoundland archives. And I spent some time there digging through boxes and boxes of ship's logs and diaries and handwritten notes. And uh, and then they had all copies of, of Ina's uh, photographs as well. Yeah, Fantastic. Well, thank you for this, Jill. This is, uh, I mean, thank you for doing what you're doing because it's such an important part of our past and it, you know. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's it's you know such an honor to be close to and then be able to share these kinds of yeah of stories. Yeah, fantastic. I, b- before I let you go, I know you've always got interesting things on the go, and there's a connection to Jane Goodall. Yeah, I think you have. And I, could you just tell us about that? <laughs> yeah, there's a new program that's uh, just launched on Apple TV called Jane, and it's a kids program, but it's 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 quite different because there's a lot of really exciting computer computer generated graphics and and it's really meant to carry on Jane Goodall's legacy and yeah. you know Jane Goodall was like an unknowing mentor to me I did have a chance to meet her um uh, and she is an amazing woman but her work carries on in this in this program and uh, and I'm in the first episode so <laughs> oh, that's fantastic you're yeah, kicking it off wow yeah, that's quite an honor yeah they're carrying my story about swimming with polar bears in the in the arctic so mm. um the 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 young uh girl who's uh who, who's you know, leading the program talks about conservation efforts and and you know how to save the planet basically and and there's also a a great um, supporting uh, uh, web program called Roots and Shoots that's mm-hmm. uh, Jane's foundation and and they have all these teacher resources and kids resources so like there's a little scrapbook about about the whole polar bear encounter there and and lots of wonderful stuff that kids can get for free or parents or teachers can can use to to share this message awesome so that's streaming on apple tv yeah streaming on apple tv and i'm going to the big you know official premiere tomorrow at the toronto zoo oh fun yeah awesome well it's always a pleasure we look forward to the the next time and and safe travels thank you so much (laughs) that's it for this episode of explore thanks so much listening. If you enjoyed it, please rate and review us. It helps others to find these interviews. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. Until next time, when we'll explore again. I'm David McGuffin. I think right now we're enjoying very much looking back at the Earth, and it's just a fantastic experience, and I just can't wait to get back and start telling people. We left Simpson about June 10th with the Fur Brigade 
consisting of a number of yacht boats, each manned by ten voyageurs. For us Inuit, it means that Inuit oral history is very strong. And we flew low over every inch of the country that could be. We were hoping that he would fire at us. Thank you.